not okay. Yeah. Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. Okay, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Dr. Sharice Rohr Allegrini. Did I say that right? All right. Uh, I'm joined with her and uh, my dog Winston, in case you hear him bark, I apologize. Uh, Our guest is an infectious disease epidemiologist and consultant, Um, has a long list, a long resume. I think one of the more important things or, you know, what I thought was interesting was you were the pandemic flu coordinator for San Antonio Metro Health District, uh, which I think probably has a lot of overlap to what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, We're going to get to COVID. We're going to get to how people are responding and reacting uh, what San Antonioans should be doing to make sure they're looking out for their neighbors. But first, I want to go through just a few general questions with you, get to know you. This is the first time we've met. Um, Jody Newman told me I should reach out to you, mm-hmm. and you were gracious enough to give me a little bit of your time. Uh, do you have any pets? I do. I have a dog, Chico, and three cats. All right. Oh, one thing I did notice, you and I both have been a Where I Live for Rivard Report. Ah, right. I've actually done a lot of writing for Rivard Report. I saw that too. (laughs) It's a great series, yeah. Yeah. Um, Favorite place to eat right now? Oh, right now? Uh, Thai Lucky. Uh, Or there's a Chinese place on the west side whose name I always forget. But okay. <laughs> it's on Ingram Road, and uh, we go there for takeout quite often. Is it the one behind the mall? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kind of a all- younger lady who runs the show? Yeah, probably. I think Jody and it's her husband pro- took me there. They go there a lot. Okay. Yes. It's, a, oh, it's fantastic. It's awesome. Yes, yeah. that's our favorite place. So my kids keep asking when we can go get takeout again. Okay, so I think you'll probably have a good answer to this. Everybody that comes to San Antonio... I always say, okay, you've done that, but you've got to go do this. What is your sort of hidden gem you tell everybody about? Ooh, ooh that's uh, usually it's friendly spot. Okay, fair. <laughs> yeah. It's not really hidden, but it's one of my favorite places to hang out. And I often just say, just take a stroll along the river. It's absolutely yeah. wonderful. I love uh, walking downtown super early in the morning, 5, 6 a.m. when nobody's out. It's yeah. really quiet and beautiful. Japanese Tea Gardens is one I've been. That's gorgeous. I've yeah. had a guest say Esquire, Esquire downstairs. I mean, fun. there are yeah. some hidden gems. Right. Um, other than your job or, or sort of your professional involvement, which we're going to talk about, are you involved in any sort of outside nonprofits, charities that you're real passionate about? I'm involved in a lot of things. I wear a lot of hats. So, um, for a long time, I was the president, I'm not anymore, but of Friends of Bonham Academy, which is our public school. We have a foundation that supports, uh, Friends of Bonham. Uh, I've been with them for eight years or so. Um, it's a Title I SAISD school, and we've done a lot to raise funds for their programs there. I am also the president of my neighborhood association, the Lavaca Neighborhood Association, okay. and have been doing that for a few years. So heavily involved in urban planning issues and community issues at that level. And your neighborhood, it sounds like everything's kind of right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Um, any odd hobbies? Oh, God. Odd hobbies. You make birdhouses, you quilt, no, anything I strange? Feel, I feel so boring. Gosh, I do a lot of things. I'm usually so busy doing different things. I've got kids, so that takes up a lot of my time. I love theater. 
uh, mostly to watch okay, yeah. <laughs> and memorize all the songs. Yeah. I don't actually perform. Uh, my kids are in theater, so I support that. Um, I, I used to play soccer. I don't anymore. I used to be a diver, and I'm not anymore. Okay. Uh, but I try to do a lot of little things uh, here and there. So I, I'd love to tell you I have one hobby, and now I don't know. I'm usually supporting my family's hobbies. Yeah, jack of all trades. <laughs> That's what happens like. when you're a mom, yeah. too. <laughs> Okay, um, this is one of my favorites. I had a mullet when I was a kid. What terrible trend did you follow? <laughs> I am so not a trendy person. I feel like I've had the ha same hairstyle since nineteen. Not when you were fourteen. Uh, I no. I I'm trying to think. I, you know, and I look back at those photos. My God, they're they're not any different. I was okay. something's wrong with me. I'm not. <laughs> I was never that cool. So uh, the first guest is bald as I am uh, and his horrible trend was he had a picked out afro which oh, is just right. funny now <laughs> that's he awesome have any yeah hair. uh how long have you lived in San Antonio since I moved here in 2001 okay uh favorite fiesta event oh King William Parade okay all right that's Absolutely. I think the standard now among every guest has been the King William oh Parade. really that's yeah. great it's my neighborhood event sure. I would say the fair except usually we just do um, house parties during the fair I don't really go into it anymore <laughs> but that's it's it's like a big community party so my law firm is the first aid station sponsor for King William Fair uh, oh wonderful yeah awesome nearly. that's great um Okay, so you're the only second epidemiologist I've ever met, and the first had some sort of strange interest, and I want to say crop funguses. Would that be right? Is it? Would that be an area that of epidemiology? Be, oh, absolutely, that's an area. Okay. It's it's a disease of plants. So, do you have any sort of weird specific interests among epidemiology? I mean, I saw your post today about armchair epidemiologists. Apparently, oh, yeah. that's an interest. But any others? <laughs> Well, you know, I've done a, I've worked on a lot of different things, and most people know me now in relation to TB, STDs, or uh, or flu or respiratory diseases. But I actually started in vector biology, so diseases transmitted by bugs of some sort, or mosquitoes, ticks, fleas. No, fleas, not really. Uh, sand flies. Um, I used to work on all of those, and those—that's really my first love—is uh, mosquito-borne diseases. Is that what vector means? That yeah. it travels species. It's a ve the vector is what's transmitting the the virus or the parasite or the bacteria from an animal to a human, okay. usually, and, or between humans. And we have a real problem if if uh, if a really bad one starts getting transmitted by mosquitoes here in San Antonio. Oh yeah, so yeah. we have you know. Dengue exists in Central and South America. We've seen a few cases pop up um, coming north, but not anything transmitted locally. We were very worried about Zika virus mm -hmm. for a while. That's definitely around. Um, it hasn't been as bad as we were worried about, but it's there. Um, we used to have malaria in the U.S. Um, until 80 years ago or so. And then we drained swamps in a lot of places. Huh. Uh, Washington, D.C. actually used to be full right. of malaria. So uh, it has existed here before. We've just been able to get rid of it. And DDT, was was that a DDT? big part of it? Uh, no, I think um, I think for the malaria mosquitoes, it was really draining the swamps in okay. a lot of places. So different species. Different species of mosquito. Yeah, DDT has helped uh, get rid of mosquitoes in a lot of areas, but now we see resistance. So we see the mosquitoes coming back. Gotcha. Um, what is an epidemiologist? An epidemiologist is a jack of all trades, really. <laughs> I say jack of all trades, master of some, because you have to know a lot about a few different fields, but you have to you have your hands in a lot of different things. And it was perfect for somebody like me who's interested 
in many things. I started um, c- college as a political science major in okay. international relations. Then I went to biology, and then I went back to political science, and then I went into epidemiology in graduate school. And I love it because you have to understand not just the science of the disease, um, not just the, the modeling. A lot of people think of epidemiologists are just modelers. They're working on data behind a computer. Yeah. An epidemiologist is actually someone that has to understand the social dynamics and disease transmission. You have to understand the culture of the place. You have to sometimes understand the history and the politics of a place. And a lot of the work I did initially was um, in tropical diseases. So in in a lot of uh, countries in Africa or or Southeast Asia, where you really have to understand the local community and um, what's their historical context. Have they had a disease like this before? Have Western doctors come in and told them something and that's made them not trust us? And so you have to be very conscientious and work with the the folks there. So you you really have to know anthropology and sociology as well as um, infectious disease and a bit of uh, data modeling. Although, I'm frankly, I like to turn to the statisticians to to do the data part, and then I can explain it. I let them play with the number. I like playing with numbers too a lot. Sure, <laughs> and that I would say that's a little bit of a hobby. Yeah, <laughs> give me an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> I'm really excited, <laughs> um, but really, I like the high level statistics. I'll ask the statistician to do, and then I can explain it in terms of the context of uh, of the community that's impacted by it. Okay, and then. I guess from the same perspective of like a pharmacist, you can be a retail pharmacist or you can be a, a research pharmacist. From an epidemiological standpoint, it sounds like you have more involvement than probably some in the government sort of role and or response to disease. Would that be fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I started in academics, um, but the people I was trained by were usually physicians who were also epidemiologists and had worked in the field. They were the ones that were doing the outbreak investigation. You know, some of them had done the, the original Ebola investigation in 1976 or loss of fever um, around that same time. And those were my early professors, um, which was just amazing to have that experience to to the real world experience. Um, And I think that's a lot different from when your experience is based on computer modeling, you know, and one of the advantages that I had was coming to, to work for San Antonio Metro Health District. I came in um, as, you know, kind of quasi-academic. I had, I had also done a lot of field work because I'd, I'd worked in um, tropical diseases. Um, but I hadn't done kind of on-the-ground epi locally. And working for San Antonio Metro Health, I was working with an epidemiologist who was not academically trained, but had mm. um, was really a bootstrap epi. You yeah. know? And, and uh, we butted heads a lot at first because I was this young, you know, highly educated epidemiologist, I was going to show him what to do yeah. and he would get annoyed with me. And in the end, I, I'm so grateful for the experience I had of the, the mentorship I had from somebody like that who had so much real world knowledge of what the diseases looked like and how we had to investigate it. Because I had learned it, but I hadn't actually seen it in practice. And they knew how it looked in a community. Exactly. Yeah. They knew how, like, and, and it was little things like, this is how you talk to that community. And I knew that academically, because we did study it, you know, like, you um, <laughs> you often come in with this idea and you expect people to follow it. And then you realize, why aren't they listening to me? Oh, because you didn't talk to the right people. Sure. And, um, and I knew that sort of in the African situation, but I didn't think of it locally. And he would, I remember going one time, and he's chatting with somebody and like 
ask them the question. Come on, we need to get the information. He's like, just, just wait, just wait, you know? Yeah. And then he eventually got all the information we needed because he knew how to work, you know, ask about the family, ask about the kids. Ask, then they're more likely to talk to you. Yeah. And that happens here as well as in Central Africa. It's uh, just so strange to think that you've got to have those skills even when it's your own neighbors, as opposed to going to a different culture right. and country. Yeah, You do, yeah. yeah, because, I mean, all our work is so dependent upon trust. Yeah. The folks have to trust us. And if they see us as this outside force, even if it's just, um, you know, somebody in a tie, um, we have to get them to, to trust us. And so that matters to have that, that link. And I think I have that experience cause I've worked at the local level. Um, and so a lot of government EPIs have, but that's different from sort of academic EPIs who, um, some of them might've worked in that area and, and a lot have not. Right. Um, I think my m biggest uh, exposure to it was listening to a PBS show about how epidemiologists and anthropologists went into Africa during the most recent Ebola and got them to change burial practices and how much effort that took to convince people about, you know, hundreds of years of cultural changes, you know, or cultural significance needed to be changed. It's pretty exactly. interesting to me. Yeah, you know. it's fascinating stuff, and I'm glad you bring up Ebola because uh, in the 76 original Ebola outbreak, um, that was one of the big issues. And the, these Western scientists said, okay, you need to stop burying people like this yeah. and <laughs> get out of here. We're <laughs> not going to listen to you. And it took a long time, and they finally worked with the village elders to discuss like why that needed to be done. And then the village elders went and told the people and got them to change yeah. practices. Yeah, and so they had to do it again in the last... <laughs> Which is crazy, outbreak. I mean, that we're talking about that in terms of this, and I still have people that want to meet up tomorrow for drinks. I mean, right. we're dealing with this right now culturally, whether we want to admit it or not, and we look at our neighbors, and our neighbors are almost foreign people in terms of following the rules and what we know is the safe practice. Right. Talk to me a little bit about why COVID is such a, a unique danger to our community and why it needs to be taken differently than what you see on Facebook of, hey, it's a flu. It's close to the right. flu. Why is this different? So flu is pretty bad to begin with. So seasonal flu kills a lot of people every year, um, but it has a, a lower case fatality rate, so 0.1% versus what we're looking at, 2 to 3% of people that get it die. So already a lot more people die from it. It also has a higher contagious rate. So you're more likely to, you're going to give it to a few more people than you are with flu. It's a little bit higher. Um, and so it's going to spread faster and it's going to kill more people overall. We're still kind of in the early stages of that. Um, it's a completely different virus from flu. It causes a similar type of illness, um, but it's much more severe. Uh, now, in a lot of people, it's not severe. 80% of cases, it's fairly mild. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, if you're in that 80%, you're not impacted in any way. You can right. actually be, if you're even a low-risk person, you could still die from it. Um, so it's a, it's a different story than flu because it's spreading so fast and it's killing more people. And we don't have a vaccine. And, and my own personal feeling, which you can tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong, is that it seems like our numbers in America at least are kind of bullshit because we're not really testing and it's yeah, sort of this, totally. here's what we know, but there's a whole lot we don't know. Right. Do we have enough data internationally to say, okay, the mortality rate is 0.1%? I mean, we, have we gotten there yet, we think? Um, we have a lot of data, but it's still lacking because it's different for each country. Um, it is, it is bullshit, really, yeah. what we have in the U.S. We're testing likely positives. So, in fact, if you look right. at our local rate, it looks like we have a lot of people getting infected because the, the rate of positives in the tests we're doing is about 10 to 11%. 
That's huge. Sure. South Korea, it's two and a half percent. Where they're testing tens because of thousands of people everybody. a day. Yeah. We're, we're only testing people that are likely to be positive. So when you think about that, 10-11 is, is actually pretty good because right. these are people we think have it. And yeah. it turns out that 90% of them don't. Um, but still, we're only testing those that are likely to have it. We're not looking in the general population because there's probably a lot of uh, lower level infectious people out there and we're not finding them. So... We have a lot of data uh, worldwide. It's telling a story, um, but we have to look at the data in context. And that's a lot of what I do. I've yeah. been writing a lot about that, trying to explain the story. The story in South Korea is very different from the story in Italy, which is different from the UK, which is different from the US. Let me ask you this. And uh, is there a genetic component to how our bodies sort of and culturally react to or can fend off viruses as they sweep through. I mean, say, I'm, I'm sure it's not true, but would Italians who have probably a more homogeneous population than Americans, is there genetic, uh, mm. is there some sort of effect of genetics for certain societies as to whether they'll be more susceptible or not? There's certainly some diseases where that's a factor. Sure. Uh, for example, with malaria, um, a lot of Africans have something called the Duffy factor on their red blood cells, mm -hmm. which makes it more difficult for one of the strains of malaria to infect them. So you don't see that particular uh. malaria parasite. You see other malaria parasites, but not that one, um, causing disease in Africa. Uh, that is a genetic variation. There's no reason to believe we have a genetic variation with COVID. It doesn't appear to have a genetic variation. Certainly every person is different. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the hom homogeneity of our immune system. So that's, um, it's actually better to uh, interbreed with, with uh, other ethnicities because yeah. you mix up the, um, the immune profile that you have now. Whether Hybrid vigor. Hybrid vigor, yeah. exactly. Um, so my dog's going to live till better be 50 at least. <laughs> right. Better be. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, there, so there's some validity to the theory, whether or not that's relevant to COVID. Probably not, to be honest. Um, but it's certainly an interesting thing to look at. Now, that doesn't mean that the Chinese or the Italians are more susceptible or not. I think what we've seen in both those populations has a lot to do with the social dynamics that have led to increased infection. And I want to get there in a second, but one thing that I, I found really interesting was The Economist ran an article that said the next five populations that are most at risk for a big outbreak. And one was Iceland, and they said Iceland is having a very, it's sort of, for each person infected, they are infecting more people than in other cultures. Have you looked at that? I mean, I haven't seen that. Yeah. I'll, I'll take a look at that afterwards. Um, there's been a couple of cases where it looks like the rate of spread is much higher. Um, but it could be that we're just, if this is new, it could be that 10 people there are infected and they're infecting, they're each infecting three, which is what we think it is. That's 30 people that they're infecting. Yeah. But we may only know of one of them that's positive. Right. We may not, we may assume that all those 30 came from one case, when in reality, they came from 10 cases. We don't know that yet. So before you came on, I asked people to send me some questions that, that they have. And, and one of the questions that I've gotten, which seems absurd, but honestly, it is one of these things is, what is the six foot radius? Why is that so important? People are oh. not emanating this virus, are they? So when you speak, stuff comes out of your mouth. Huh. Even so when you cough for sure. For sure. And sneeze for sure. But even when you speak, there's little particles that come out. And it's sometimes it's obvious. We know the spitters. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> but sometimes it's not obvious at all. Most of the time it's not obvious. So the virus, it's in droplets that's in that that spit. That's also why like you need to clean the microphone right. after I'm done. 
Um, the vi virus is in those droplets, and those droplets can't travel very far. They don't float through the air. It's sure. not aerosolized. So, um, but if you're within three feet, there's a good chance that that droplet is going to land on your mouth, land on your face, land on your nose, land on, land on your hands, and then you touch yourself, and that's how you transmit it. So by keeping three to six feet is what we say, and six feet is, is sort of the... We, we try to be careful. <laughs> and for our listeners, that's about what we are right now. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was thinking about it today. It's Tony, Tony Parker's six foot two. So think about it as like, just if you're a Tony Parker distance apart, yeah. you're, you're good. It's not very far. It's easy to have a conversation right. that you're six feet apart. Um, but that's the important thing, because if we're that far apart, I'm not going to get the virus from you talking. You know, if you're coughing really hard and spitting up, that might be. So, but which you should stay home anyway. Which you should stay home. Yeah. Normal yeah. conversation, you're not like to, likely to be. So that's why that six-foot rule matters. Okay. Um, we've got an order starting tomorrow. Uh, it sounds like it's going to go until April 9th, um, mm -hmm. and then they'll reevaluate. The goal uh, is social distancing, it sounds like, and it's government-mandated because probably right. people weren't following that. Right. Is there a metric by which the city, as far as, let me ask you this, are you involved in the city's response to this? Not officially, no. Okay. Uh, maybe a consulting capacity or got some friends in city government who are t discussing with you. Mm -hmm. it, what, what, what are we looking for? And let's just talk in the abstract. If you were in charge of this response, what would we be looking for in terms of this April 9th deadline? I mean, are we going to be able to measure anything and say we're doing good or do we still not have enough tests to even get good data? We don't have enough tests to get good data. So ideally we'll have less infection. I will tell you, I, I'm not optimistic because even if we have more tests, we're going to see an upswing in cases. We've really just started testing. Expect the next two to three weeks to see those numbers skyrocket. But don't be scared by that. Those are We already assume those people are out there infected. Yeah. We just haven't been looking for them because we haven't had testing capacity. As we get more tests, we're going to find more positives and those numbers are going to go up. But that's good information because then we can say, okay, everybody that you're in contact with, we also need to test them and isolate them while we're evaluating evaluating those tests, um, quarantine if necessary. So eventually we can start doing more targeted isolation so we don't have to shut everything down. We can just focus on those those communities that are highest risk or those folks that are likely positives. What was the reasoning? Um, I know you can't speak for what people do, but it seems as though we kind of had a sort of blasé approach to this. Too little, too late. Not just, not just San Antonio, but sort of America did. Is it just a cultural attitude? Is it that people didn't think it was going to be as bad? I mean, this has to be the same story for epidemics and pandemics time and time right. again. What is the idea that, oh, it won't happen to us? I mean, what is the cultural thing that keeps people from going, holy shit, we need to stop what we're doing right now? Um, I think part of it is because it started in Asia. And we just assume, oh, that's going to happen over there. Yeah. We're insulated from that. And I will tell you, when I was doing pandemic planning, this was 2005, 2006, we were really worried about avian flu becoming a pandemic. Um, it, the way it infected people, it wasn't transmitted between people. It was only bird to human. So it was very, very bad for those humans that got it, but they didn't give it to anybody else. So it didn't turn into a pandemic. It was pretty isolated. But that prompted us to do a lot of planning. I spent, I probably gave 100 lectures uh, around the city with different types of organizations. I worked extensively with the hospitals. We developed a response plan. I worked with city agencies to develop response plans. And a lot of times that was well received. And I would say things like, what are you going to do if 20% of your workforce are sick? Or 
those 20% are sick and the other 20% are home taking care of their kids yeah. because school's closed. How are you going to function? How are you going to maintain um, your business in that sort of situation? Um, and the, a lot of the bigger businesses already do that. So HEB does that already. They already had their, their strategic planners on staff. Um, USAA already had that. Um, but a lot, of, um, a lot of smaller businesses didn't. And, and often I would hear, it was either scared, people were scared, or I was chicken little, you know, running around, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Yeah. Um, and then we had a pandemic in 2009, which a lot of people actually forget about. That actually, the first cases were identified here in San Antonio. Huh. Uh, most people don't know that. <laughs> um, but they were found here in San Antonio, and I was the communicable disease manager at Region 8, which is Department of State Health Services. So I was actually over, I was actually running that response. Was this H1N1? H1N1. Okay. Right. Um, but it turned out to not be as bad as we expected a pandemic to be. So it was still pretty significant, but it wasn't as it, it wasn't the sky is falling that we expected. And, and can you talk to that? I mean, look, we are, you know this, we're in a world where people put the dumbest crap on Facebook and it just circulates as though it's somehow you know, gospel. And one thing I've seen over and over is this, oh, well, when H1N1, we weren't tanking our economy and screwing things up. Compare sort of, uh, if you can, our response to H1N1 and sort of the actual facts of the virus compared to what we're dealing with today. Well, yeah, it was, I mean, I think our response then was pretty intense. Certainly as the public health person overseeing our local response, it was extremely intense and and we closed some schools, but it wasn't the broad scale closures um, because we didn't need to do that. Um, It just, the disease was not as severe as we would have expected. So it wasn't killing people as fast. Now it was deadly in pregnant women. It was, that was the population most effective. And I, huh. I was pregnant at the time, so I, I was pretty scared. Um, but I think the general public didn't perceive the threat as much um, because the threat wasn't as big. I mean, this is just a different situation. We have, it's deadlier um, and it's spread faster. So we're, we're faced with a different situation and it's a new virus. We don't have testing. So at least with H1N1, we can test for flu. And we were able to test right away and start mm. typing it and identify it. And while we didn't have a, a vaccine for that strain, we have a vaccine for other strains. It's a little easier to build on that foundation to get a new vaccine. So would a regular flu test pick up H1N1 back right. then? Okay, right. so it we just, had some in the, in the we, hopper. We could identify if you were infected with flu. And then w- the reason we found it, and this is important because we don't do surveillance like we used to, uh, but we had surveillance. So we have sentinel sites, different clinics in the city, and this is across the country, that actually take a sample and send it to CDC. So if you think you have flu and you go to the doctor, they don't always test for it. They may say, okay, it's flu season. You have all these symptoms. I think you have flu. Here's Tamiflu. Go home and get better. Um, But there are certain clinics that will always test for it. And then they'll take a sample of those and send them to the CDC and they'll type them. They'll see like, okay, is it flu A? And then if it's flu A, is it H3N2 or any of the ones that we have or flu B? Okay. So they do that with a small subsample. This these individuals, two individuals, they happened to go to this clinic that was a sentinel site. They did their normal thing of taking samples and sending them to the CDC after they had verified it was flu. And CDC said, oh, whoa, whoa, we've got a new virus. This is not like anything we've seen before. It looked like swine flu, which is why we were calling it swine flu at the time. Now that virus is what we see every year. We still have H1N1. That's in our vaccine every year because we see it every year, but we have a vaccine for it. Is that is is COVID in our our yearly repertoire of viruses now? I mean, is this going to be here to stay? 
I really don't know. I hope not. I mean, do do, <laughs> but it could be. So it's a coronavirus, Latin for crown. Right. Coronaviruses are pretty common, right? Right. That's uh, well, the common cold is called by caused by a lot of different viruses, but Corona is one of them. Okay. Do coronaviruses generally kind of stick around, or are there some that are just seen for a year or two and gone? So SARS, we haven't really seen since the first outbreak. I think there was a little spike after that. We haven't seen much. Okay. Um, MERS is another coronavirus. Um, that, the Middle East respiratory. Right, that yeah. caused a lot of deaths, and we haven't seen that pop up again. So generally with severe viruses, what they do is they kill too many people, so the virus doesn't survive. A virus, you know, if, if you're if you're a virus that wants to live, you don't want to kill your host. Sure. You want to make them, you don't even want to make them sick. You just want to be passed on enough to, to live, right. to, to go to another host. Um, so if you kill too many of your hosts, then you can't go anywhere and you die too. Um, this virus is different because it's not as deadly as SARS. Uh, the death rate is a lot lower in our sort of young, healthy population right. that people are going to keep transmitting the virus. So we may end up seeing it as a, a yearly thing. Um, we'll hopefully see cases go down, and really what will stop it is a vaccine. Okay. I was You were going to say we'll hopefully see them go down, maybe come back. We don't know yet whether the seasons are going to affect this yet, do we? We don't. Um, a lot of people think it will because su- uh, flu is seasonal, but it doesn't have anything really to do with the heat so much. It, it There's still a lot of debate about that. Certainly heat and humidity have an impact on virus survival on surfaces, so that, that could be a factor. But mostly it's because of how we live. So we tend to be indoors more in the wintertime than the summertime. San Antonio is different. You know, it's hot. People are indoors in the summer. And H1N1 started in April. It's the beginning of April, huh. and worldwide cases dropped in the summertime. But in South Texas, they stayed pretty high. Now they dropped a little bit, but we had consistent high numbers of cases through the summer, and then a big peak again in September and October. I had a flu in June. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's it can happen. It can happen any time of the year. So it's not that the virus doesn't live in the heat. Now we're kind of hoping that it'll follow a similar pattern in the summer. Will give us some some of a break, but yeah. it's not clear. What is um, what is your plan as it relates to sort of the the sit tight and wait? I mean, are y'all staying home? No guests, no visitors. Only leave if you need to get supplies. I mean, is that is that the best plan for people to take? That that is the best plan for people to take. Um, but I'm a strong believer in being outdoors. We're not like Italy. We don't live as densely as right. Italy. Um, we can, you know, I live in Southtown, which is a pretty urbanish area but there's a lot of houses i can stay my whole family can stand outside of our house as well as everybody in my block and we're still 20 feet apart yeah so w- the need to stay indoors is not necessary in fact it's better to be outside um i strongly encourage people to go to a park but don't go and play scapes don't touch stuff sure. you know kick around a soccer ball but don't don't play soccer and tackle right. you know that those sorts of things are healthy good things to do the virus well, it can persist outside on surfaces. It probably doesn't last as long. Um, but also, um, as long as you're six feet apart, the, it disperses more in the air. So yeah. you're kind of better off outside. If you're inside, you're more likely to touch stuff. So we kind of, you know, our thing is we're not inviting people over Um my kids, I've encouraged them to go outside and play, um, but again, in very specific kind of environments. Um, 
I, you know, I go shopping, but only for groceries. I and mean, we just don't need to go out. Fortunately, my husband and I are both in professions that we can work from home fairly easily. That's nice. Um, and I work from home normally. So uh, now it's just I have four people in my house instead of my <laughs> instead of myself. Um, but, um, you know, so for us, it's, it's fairly easy transition. I know it's a lot more complicated for a lot of other people. Right. So, I mean, limit what you do. Um, I'm not, you know, we, we don't eat out that much, even despite living in Southtown. Um, we are doing a little more takeout than we normally yeah. do just to try to help the local businesses. Um, but kind of limiting what we do. And we do go out, we walk the dog every night and, and I will go running in the morning. Um, and I don't see very many people and that's fine. And it's easy enough, especially with my dog to keep people six feet away. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, are the parks all open? I mean, is that Par- still a thing? Parks are open, yes. Okay. And, you know, in some cities, they've closed them. So, for example, the L.A. area has closed most of its parks um, and beaches. And the general L.A. area, LA County um, has done that. Um, but that's because the they were so crowded. My sister lives there, and she was. She said, I've been going running, and the trails I usually run on where there's nobody are just – she said it was like Disneyland. Oh, it was so packed. And so Somewhere they finally, to go. Right. You know, yeah. people are off. They want to be outside, which is we normally encourage. But what she said, it was like Disneyland there. So it's hard to stay six feet away. So that's why they closed them. We're not in that situation here. Yeah. We don't have that density to start with. Um, and even in our densest parts of town, that's generally not an issue. So go out to the park to be outside. Just remember to stay six feet away. Yeah. Um, I, we talked about this before, but this was one of the questions that was asked. Are pregnant women at any additional risk of, of, of this or passing it on to the fetus or anything like that? It does not appear so. Now, you know, this is new. We're right. still learning. Um, we were worried about, obviously, we always worried about pregnant women because they are more medically fragile. Our bodies are just not functioning <laughs> like right. normal. Um, and certainly with H1N1, pregnant women were at the highest risk. So far, we're not seeing any increased risk in pregnant women. Okay. Um, another thing that was asked, and, and you see this on Facebook, is this sort of idea that if it fits your political agenda, but what countries have, have you seen that are doing sort of the best and what makes them the best at, at sort of containing this and keeping a lid on it? South Korea, for okay. sure. Um, Singapore is doing a pretty good job. Um, their situation's a little different. So South Korea, when they were prepared after MERS, when they got slammed, Um, they said, we're not going to let this happen again. So when they started to see cases, they acted immediately. Um, Most of it's testing and contact tracing, so identifying the people that you've been in contact with and then isolating them. They've done a lot of things that probably wouldn't work here. So first, they, in a way, they got lucky because their first cases were in this church population, uh, which tended to be younger. So then individual that probably infected a lot were was older but most of the people that they tested from that population were younger so they had a lot of positives they had over 5,000 I believe but they were a relatively young healthy adult so didn't get very sick but because of that they were able to isolate them all immediately and they actually anybody that was positive that didn't need hospital care was taken to another facility where they could be monitored until all their their symptoms were gone, but they didn't really need hospitalization, but they were kept out of the general population. Um, Some of the things they did that wouldn't work in this country is they got cell phone data of every uh, positive person and um, they could find out where they've been. It was their way of tracking contacts. And they also would say, okay, there's a you know, there's a case, uh, not, they didn't, I don't think they said a specific address, but they would give a lo- general location. And that would alert everybody that, okay, there's a case within 
a mile of you, (laughs) you need to go uh, get tested. Um, That worked. That's not something I'm recommending at all. In fact, um, some political leaders wanted to do that in H1N1. That's a huge violation of privacy. And Mm. people, not just the privacy issue, but human reaction can be extremely problematic. We've seen it before with um, stigma, not just stigma, but the physical attacks on people. We don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. Korean society is a lot different. People are more willing to sacrifice those personal liberties um, for that. um, Community. Yeah, for the the community, and they they did it. I'm I'm not recommending that level here, but I am recommending the testing. That's the huge difference. They they didn't hesitate to test. They started testing as broadly as they could, not just the sickest people, but the, um, the you know potential contacts. So you, yeah. they're still prioritizing. They weren't testing everybody that walked up initially. It was sort of if you're a contact to a case, so there's reason to think while well, we build up capacity to test more. And that's really what we need I to be doing here. I think I read they're doing phone booth testing. They yeah. call it now, where they, you can literally just walk in. Right. Yeah. It's it's like a, a concealed yeah. area. So <laughs> the per, the person dealing with you is pr- totally protected. They stick gloves through a, yeah, a, a ex- holes. Yeah. Exactly. And that's important too because right now you go into a clinic waiting room. You're waiting there. You're infecting everybody everybody right. in the room. So um, it's really important that they, they're they isolating any potential infected people and, and really doing an amazing job. Now, we're starting to see cases jump up a little bit in, in South Korea. That's normal. We see waves. Yeah. Um, what'll be the, the clincher is, is, is that wave small? Yeah. We expect it to happen, but as long as it doesn't skyrocket, and I don't think it will because they're doing such aggressive testing. And as they sort of reopen up society, do those waves stay about the same heights as the crests? Right, yeah. right. They they will. I mean, hopefully they'll they'll go down into smooth yeah. <laughs> after a while and totally flat after a while. But it's normal to see little little spikes here and there. Why have we been so ill-equipped to test? I mean. Why don't we have enough tests? Are they hard to create? Are we are we failing somehow on that? I, you know, it's that we we wanted to create our own um, instead of using what China already had, what South Korea already had. Um, we why? What is the upside? Is it a profit deal? I, I'm not sure it's profit. I think it. <laughs> I, frankly, I think it's more arrogance. Okay. Uh, we we don't trust them from somewhere else. Fair. We want to make, I, I, arrogance, but it's also just. Um, care, caution, you know, and that's, that's totally understandable. That's a very nice way to put it. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, this thing came from another country. We don't, they don't necessarily have the same standards of control. Yeah. So we want to do it our way. It's been a good starting point though. It would have, yeah. it would have, but I, but I understand that too. It's not, it, and I shouldn't say arrogance cause that's, that's probably part of it, but that's not all of it. Yeah. It's, we have certain standards of control. So we want to make sure every test that we use has met our control standards. It's pretty bizarre. We buy most of our pharmaceuticals from these same countries and we wouldn't accept their tests though. I mean, that is sort of a strange dichotomy to this argument. I mean, yes. it's just sort no, of an ab- odd deal. Absolutely. I read in the New York times, um, there's there's some opinion writer there who's really into this and he doesn't like the way we're approaching it. And he talked a lot about um, we could do this through horizontal oh, or yeah. vertical interdiction. And his right. sort of take is let's let's do this shutdown vertically across age groups as opposed to horizontally right. being everybody. Is there data sort of outside of this New York Times article to sort of discuss whether or not that's that's working? Is there any evidence this is being used in other countries or is just just armchair quarterback? 
Um, so he's not an epidemiologist, but he, he is very familiar with epidemiology. He actually uh, was in graduate school at Yale the same time I was. Oh. But we were not friends. I, I knew him vaguely, but um, more from by name than we didn't hang out together. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, uh, Like how we're getting some college, uh, you know, cheese <laughs> yeah. now. Uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't remember. <laughs> I just remember his name very well from that okay. time period. Um, he's not the only one that thinks that. There's a number of other older, very reputable scientists and epidemiologists that agree with him. Um, there's not necessarily data on exactly that from around the world, but South Korea, for example, didn't do this massive shutdown. They did more targeted where uh, people that were contacts to cases were isolated rather than the whole city. Now, in Wuhan, China, they shut down the whole city, but it was already so out of control right. that they had to. But they didn't have to shut down the whole country. They just shut down the city, and they were able to get it under control. Um, in South Korea, they haven't had to go that far because they've had such aggressive testing that they can isolate, the targeted isolation, which really is kind of what he's getting at, that we can do more targeted isolation. now. But you have to have the data to do that. You have to have the data. You have to have the testing. You have yeah. to have the testing right. to do it. So, in, you know, I... I shared that article because it made a lot of good points. There's a lot of epidemiologists that were furious with that article um, who are also experts and have a very, very different opinion. And the thing is, when you say that, then people say, okay, well, everything we're doing is wrong and we don't need to do this. And the reality is we need to do it. We need to shut down things because we need to get some time to control this. New York is is getting into a very difficult situation because they have so many cases, they're overwhelming capacity. The only way to slow that down is to shut everything down. Now, if we just shut it down and do nothing, we're just shifting the peak. Yeah. We're going to see the same number of cases in a month from now. Ideally, while we shut things down, we're also ramping up testing capacity and ramping up hospital capacity. So getting those temporary hospitals set up if we think we need them, making sure we have enough respirators, making sure we have all the, the masks and the gloves that we need so that if we get to that point where we have a lot of cases, we're able to take care of them. What is the mentality or thinking, if you know, about why we aren't sort of designating this hospital is going to be our, our, our hospital for COVID, and this one's not going to be dealing with that. I mean, it seems like it's so contagious. It's such a, it's such a thing everybody's worried about. Why aren't we limiting facilities? Well, and we might get to that point. I think um, the facilities need, still need to function as they normally function. They're still seeing car accidents, heart, heart attacks, you know, all the things that they normally do. They all have isolation units. They all have isolation wings, and some of them are turning a whole wing into an isolation area. Um, the, and we might have to go to where we just put everybody in one hospital, but, we, but what, just one hospital won't work. Sure. We're going to need to have multiple hospitals. So it's going to be important to uh, manage across the city and we have the STRAC, the South Texas Regional Advisory Council, who are the ones who coordinate with all the hospitals. And they've been doing it for years and years and years <laughs> since I came to San Antonio. Right. And so they know what hospitals have availability, how many beds there are, how many events there are, what's their capacity. They know that and can make sure that we're sending people to the right places. How is our capacity now? I mean, we haven't been overwhelmed by this yet, have we? We've not been overwhelmed at all. In fact, from my understanding, um, well, this was a few days ago. We've had a lot more cases since then. But when we had about 30 cases, only a few of those had even been hospitalized. And none of them had been in ICU. So they were not very, very sick people. And in the one death we had, it's still a little bit unclear. I believe that person who had been in hospice, Carol Reddy. Okay. So that person was already in a place where 
Vulnerable. Vulnerable, but also had said, I don't want any life-saving measures at this point. Um, And she had already had uh, respiratory pneumonia already. So um, that doesn't diminish the importance and significance of it. It just helps to put it in perspective that we have not seen the overwhelming burden on our local hospital system yet. Now, it's still flu season. There's still a lot of people in the hospital with flu. Um, And so they're, you know, they're working pretty darn hard. Um, But a lot of it, too, is um, they need to get prepared. They need to make sure they have their, their supplies ready. What um, I think I was trying to figure out what is kind of our next run of San Antonio. Are we looking at probably these shutdowns coming in waves? Are we looking at this 14 days will give the city time to prepare and that, that we should be in a good position with social distancing measures? Or do we really have no idea what's going to happen after this 14-day shutdown? Our hope is that the 14 days buys us enough time to get ready. Okay. I will argue, though, that unless we do testing, a lot of testing very quickly, and do contact tracing, which is essential, then that shutdown's not going to change anything. We're not going to see a decrease in cases in the next two weeks because we're going to start testing more. So yeah. you're going to see an increase. So it's going to look like we don't have it under control. Um, ideally, if we're doing enough testing, we don't have to continue the shutdown because we can focus on those individuals or communities or households where we know the cases are and protect them. Now, I suspect schools are going to be closed for the duration. Yeah. I mean, I know schools want to reopen. School, I mean, school kids are not really at high risk. They're less likely to be infected. They're less likely to be infectious, as far as we know. Huh. Data are still new. It's very different from flu. Flu, shut down the schools because the kids are transmitting yeah. it. In this case, it's your kid is more likely to get it from you than from another child. That's not 100%. Huh. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's always the outlier. There's always the few cases that still get it. And we have seen it in kids. It's just they're not as significant drivers of transmission that we know of now. The data may change that, but right now they're not. That said, just because of the, the structure in place of how schools work, I think it's going to be hard for a lot of them to, to restart, given that we're so close to the end of the year. I mean, school right. pretty much ends the end of May. You've 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 been involved in San Antonio pandemic response before, and tell tell just tell us generally about how those discussions go when you're talking about pandemic response in terms of what all interests have to be juggled. I mean, we know there's going to be an economic hit here that we're going to feel for a long time, and that's definitely something being juggled. But talk about how those conversations go down in the rooms when these tough decisions are being made. So I can't tell you what's happening right now, right. but in the past, um, certainly how is this going to impact our businesses? How is it going to, not just the businesses, but the the workers, okay? We had a lot of people unemployed. We haven't had to shut down to this level before. So before it was just hypothetically, right. what are we going to do? And we never really had good answers for what we're going to do. So um, how, you know, shutting down means unemployment. Are we ready to step up our our unemployment response. Do we have the funds to help people through that process? Um, Holding rent is great for the worker that can't afford to pay their rent, but the landlord who lives off of the rent from that one apartment building that they're now not able, not just to pay their mortgage, but to pay all their other bills and their food and whatever they need for living. Um, So there's a, there's a ripple effect that goes up as well as down. Um, And then businesses, you know, small businesses struggle to survive. So some of the stronger ones will be able to manage, but a lot of the small ones, they can't survive past a month. And it's not just the restaurants. Um, I have a friend who's a dentist 
uh, started their practice about a year and a half ago. Um, and really, if they can't get a freeze on their mortgage, um, they'll probably not be able to reopen. Um, yeah. And I mean, they, they're skilled people and they'll be able to find another job, hopefully. But, you know, a lot of dental practices are small. They're like yeah. small businesses. So it's not just the restaurant workers that are suffering. It's all levels of Starting society. a small business takes a while to get up and going. Exactly. I've, I've no matter it, yeah. no matter what you're doing. So a lot of people are going to suffer. Um, some of the other things we talk about are, you know, the food bank. Uh, is the food bank stocked up? Are they going to be impacted? Certainly donations are going to slow when, yeah. you know, my income goes down. I'm not going to be able to donate as much. All the nonprofits that are impacted, you know, canceling fiesta was the right move to do but that's huge impact huge. on nonprofits. so hopefully we'll be able to have it in november which will help them reboost um the schools that rely on support from community members are not going to get that support um school districts so all most of our school districts provide meals to kids so i'm in saist and they give meals to 100 percent of the kids now there's a lot of families that don't need it, it but there's over 90 percent that do so they just give it to them all well those 90 percent some of them can't survive right and so we're trying to figure out how we can get food to them and we, we're doing the meal pickups right now which is helping but for a lot of them you know they it's just they've got three kids at home including the baby getting out to just go pick up that breakfast and lunch is hard not to mention you know what they're doing on the weekends and there's other programs in place that help people through the summer months that are not quite in place now and even you know going to HEB is a challenge because they have to get there on the bus they can't leave their three kids home alone so they have to take the whole family the bus is risky and they might have to spend two hours in line at HEB and still not get what they need Um, so those are all things that we take into consideration and also the buses Um, I know I've been asked um should we, should we drop bus service? And um, we might have to, and certainly if we're not using the bus as much because we're shutting down so much, right. but so many of our workers that are still going to work are the ones who use the bus, including our healthcare workers. Right. So we're better if we can increase service, especially on the busy lines, so that the buses aren't packed. And they just made them free, I think. They just made them free, correct, which, yeah. is, which is a wonderful thing. I would love it if, and I don't know how crowded they are right now. That's what I told them. I said, you need to study it right now. The very first stages, this was a few weeks ago, um, to see are there certain lines that are really crowded? Because what you might have to to do is cancel one line and move that over to the other one just so people don't have to crowd a bus right for the driver's sake as well as for the passengers right um it sounds like if i'm kind of hearing you right we've we we can't really come up with any other approach to the way we're dealing with this until we get more data and the only way to get more data is through testing right okay and and i think that's important because you hear a lot of people talk about what what does it matter the testing if if they've got it they don't and you're here in some countries now that are even saying look don't waste a test if it's not going to change the way well, we're handling treatment. So, and that's true. And I, and I've said that before. So when we first got our 500 tests in the city, I, I wrote a post saying, um, don't worry. If, if you think you're positive and you're not high risk, then, you know, stay home. Just assume you're positive, stay home. Uh, you're not going to get any treatment anyway, because there's not much treatment we can do. So as long as you're not needing medical care, it doesn't matter if you're positive or negative, uh, you have an infectious disease most likely of some sort, so you should isolate yourself. Um, that said, people don't do that. Right. So, And that would work, really, if everybody with a cough stayed home uh, or a fever stayed home. But we all assume, like, oh, I'm okay, I can still do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need those tests. We need the tests to document. Um, there's some places where they've said, um, unless it's going to change the course of treatment, don't waste the test, which I, I, I've also argued, like if somebody's really sick in the hospital, you're going to do the same thing with them. Right. You're going to treat them like they have a severe pneumonia. 
The difference is that the level of PPE, the personal protective equipment, the level of isolation in the hospital is going to be different. Because if you think they have COVID versus flu, you're going to keep them in a separate wing, a separate room. You're going to use a lot of other control measures, which wastes valuable PPE if you don't actually need it right. for that thing. So if we had unlimited personal protective equipment, then it wouldn't matter. But because we're limited on, test, on tests and personal protective equipment, we really have to identify which are the priority cases to test. And really the only countries that seem to have done a good job of flattening the curve, as they say, are the countries that have done a ton of tests. Right, exactly. So Singapore is another one. I hesitate to say too much about Singapore, just they have a very rest restrictive culture, even much more so than South Korea. So yeah. that, you know, and they're very small. So what they did there is not really, it's going to be hard to do And they here. had one of the big outbreaks 20 years ago or 15 years ago. I can't remember mm -hmm. which one it was. And, and, and I was reading an article how they built this infrastructure right. for a pandemic because of what happened last right. time. And we, if we did do that, we have lost it, which We've is the unfortunate and, thing. And I will say, so um, I don't want to be political, but I mean, I'm normally very political in my personal life. But, but what I want to say is, you know, we're, we want to blame the current administration and we can blame them for a lot of things. But um, when I started working at the city, um, we had a lot of funds uh, for ho from Homeland Security. It was all in response to 9-11. So that administration was dumping a lot of money into Homeland Security funds, which is how I got hired to do, um, it was actually bioweapons response planning, and yeah. then that kind of led into to pandemics. Um, but over time, the, those funds went away. And they went away with each administration, but it wasn't just the administration, it wasn't just the presidents, because we had, we had Bush, then we had Obama, and we had, now we have Trump. Um, it wasn't necessarily that decision of the, the leader, but the Congress made that decision, and Congress made decisions based on what they thought the people wanted. Sure. We were far enough away from 9-11 that the immediate fear of responding in this capacity just didn't seem as important. And I, I blame us as a society for letting that happen. We stopped caring so much about it, and so we elected people at every step of the way, from local leaders to to a president, who um, didn't push for it. Sure, let and it go so, away. Right, and so um, it's where there's a lot of anger at the the current administration, um, and and there's a lot of wrong things that were done that are being done. But I, to be fair, I have to say like this is a twenty year process. It's wasted that, away. It's, that that is yeah. gone, and, and that's normal. That happens all yeah. the time. We we did it with tuberculosis. Yeah, we were so good at, at blocking tuberculosis that we stopped funding it, and then we saw an outbreak yeah. when we had HIV, and now we're doing a lot more with tuberculosis. But again, we're you know we're victims of our own success. It, it, it's sort of the realities of today. Whether I don't obviously global warming is happening. Mm -hmm. Why is a different question, but are the realities of sort of temperatures changing and climate changing as well as just human density. I mean, is this our new normal of having these sort of pandemics or outbreaks in a way that we didn't used to have? Probably, you know, increasing population means um, you, so a lot of our new outbreaks come from animal pathogens and so it's that the the, pa the virus or bacteria or parasite lives normally in the animal population and then makes a jump into humans either because it doesn't necessarily need a mutation to do that yeah. sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't um but our 
increasing close contact with that animal population because of how we live, doing things like cutting down forests and moving into the space where they were, not only has an impact on the climate and the environment, but it also means that those animals have a different habitat. And so they're now more in close contact with humans. And so you're more likely to be exposed. And that's what I was reading about this bat or pangolins, whatever right. these are, is people are actually moving into their, their, into their habitat. So yeah. So it's not necessarily people are eating these things no, as opposed right. to human interaction with animals that used to be kind of on their own island. Exactly, exactly. We didn't really interact with them to that level that we are now, and that's having an impact. And we're going to see that more as long as we keep doing this. What is, we're, we're about out of time. What is the best source of information that you can tell our listeners oh. to check out? Apart from my page. <laughs> well, no, that's great too. <laughs> well, and I, 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 it's not that thorough, but I do thoroughly research everything I do. And it's a Facebook page. Uh, I'm not going to spell it out because it's my name, <laughs> which is really long, but you can share it. Um, your I, personal page or your No, it's my, I have page. a professional page. Yeah, it's Sharice Roy Allegrini, PhD, MPH yeah. Consulting. Um, I, I try to post something new every day. Everything I put there is very thoroughly researched, but I don't post everything. There's a lot of other stuff out there. I'm working on a lot of topics right now. Um, one good source, it's hard to say. Um, I usually refer people to the CDC website. Yeah. Um, that's certainly very useful information. I'm not sure that it's being updated as much as people would like, but it is valid information. The World Health Organization website, again, it's not updated as frequently as some people would like, but it, what's there is accurate. Okay. Um, so definitely useful. Um, the Johns Hopkins website, they have uh, that cor coronavirus tracker with oh, the yeah. map. Mm -hmm. Everyone loves that. It's great for just raw numbers. Um, so if you just want to know where the cases are, I think, I mean, it's valid. It's absolutely yeah. valid. They've um, been kind of leaders in this research. It seems they have like, been, yeah. they have been, um, you know, any of the, the universities that are doing infectious disease work, um, I trust their stuff. Um, so I, I can't pick one over the other. They're all, they're all useful. Um, they're all valid. No, I think that, what, yeah. what's important to note is anything you see, you need to understand the context. So normally when you do a scientific research, it's years of research and then you write the paper and it's a year or six months process of somebody reviewing it, multiple people reviewing it, telling you it's crap or saying, no, this is great. Or you missed something here and fixing it. And then peer it gets, review. Right. And then it gets published. <laughs> yeah. um, now we're skipping peer review because, and it's important. We need to get that information out there. We're trying to get it out fast. So a lot of stuff is coming out and it's not been peer reviewed. And like, it's the kind of thing that, um, that gets a hypothesis going. It's, it's what you need to start. Everyone does. It's a pilot. Like, we found four cases of this. Does this mean anything? We don't know. And usually the authors say that. Like, we don't have enough data to right. make a definitive conclusion, but this is interesting. Here's to, an anecdote. Right, right. But it's, you know, it's interesting to consider. Yeah. Let's look into it more. But what happens, because that's publicly available, then that gets taken off as gospel truth, and often it's not. And a lot of what I end up doing is like, okay, let me go to that paper. Let me see what they said. Let me see what else I can find. No, and put it great. all together. And some of it's right, and some of it's not and most of it has some validity um, but it's important that you just look for other sources that verify what that one paper yeah. is saying so i mean there's i i'll stick with cdc and who as the key websites for factual information um and yours and mine of course yeah. <laughs> i can you know and i tell everyone when you don't share a post unless you have thoroughly researched who the source is 
If, yeah. it's, if you don't know the name of the person that's posting it. I've told people that it, too. They don't yeah, care. They don't care. <laughs> they want to share it anyway. But, and so, and I did that on my, even mine. Yeah. Like if you don't know who I am, you better find out who I right. am. At least looked at my LinkedIn profile. And I've explained on my page who I am and what my background is and why I feel comfortable speaking with a certain amount of authority. But question me. Yeah. My conclusions may seem bogus to somebody else. And that's totally fine. I want you to tell me you're questioning me so I can revise my thinking I as mean, well. really? On fa- you want people questioning well, you on Facebook? Because it's going <laughs> to no, get No, not weird. really. That's going to get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but people have, and usually I, my page is set up so like most people do it privately, and, and like okay, let me let me rethink what I said, and usually it's the general public. I I'm, I'm happy to have scientists re- question me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> the general public, I just have to work like okay, I didn't explain that very well, yeah. so let me re- let me explain. Or what again. do you think about this other article? Right, yeah. yeah, I get that all the time, and I'm grateful that people ask me. You know, tell me what you think of this, and yeah. I like you know, um, economists like to use the data. And, and play with a lot and make really pretty graphs. And mm-hmm. it sounds really great. And, and the math is good. The math is sound. Um, go talk to an epidemiologist to make sure that the conclusions they're drawing are accurate. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on here. Maybe if, if this is still a topic of discussion in 30 days, we can have you back on and maybe have a whole bunch more data that we can discuss. Thank you. I hope so. Thanks for the invitation. And I would love to discuss if we have more data. Yeah, and I'm going <laughs> to tell everybody to go check out your professional page. I'll put a link up. Okay. Awesome. All right. That about does it for this episode. A huge thank you to Dr. Roar Allegrini um, to talk about COVID. Um, We don't know who our next guest will be, but it's going to be somebody to talk about how to stay busy and how to keep your mind sane during your lockdown. Um, My guest wish list continues. Coach Pop, Robert Rivard, and Jackie Earl Haley. So if you know them, tell them to call me. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio.